0: Genni Morozov is a visiting scholar at Stanford University and a contributing editor to foreign policy. He is also a Schwartz Fellow at the New America Foundation. He was previously a Yahoo Fellow at the Institute for the Study of Diplomacy at Georgetown University and a Fellow at the Open Society Foundation, where he remains on the board of the Information Program. Before moving to the U.S., Morozov was Director of New Media at Transitions Online, a prague based media development NGO, active in the former Soviet bloc. His articles have appeared in the Financial Times, The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, Slate, The Boston Globe, and many other publications. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Evgeny Morozov. Thank you so much, Gregory, for this introduction and for hosting me tonight. As you probably could guess from uh, my name and accent, uh, I come from Western Europe. Uh, I was born in Belarus. Uh, For those of you who don't know, I think a quote from Condoleezza Rice uh, captures it best. She once called it the last outpost of tyranny in Europe. And I think it was probably an understatement on her part. So this is where I was born and and where I uh, grew up. So obviously the question of democracy and and, and freedom has always been uh, very dear to my heart. Uh, so I've always been looking and searching uh, and trying to figure out how you can actually open up a country like Belarus and how you can make the political situation there a little bit better and hopefully a little bit more democratic. So around the year 2005, I would say, I got really enthusiastic uh, about the power of new media and the power of blogging and social networking. If you remember uh, back then, uh, there was a lot of talk in this country, in the US, about how blogs were transforming politics. That was when uh, you know, Howard Dean uh, famously used New Media in his campaign, and there was still a lot of, I think, hope in terms of how uh, blogging and New Media in general can change politics. So, following that conversation in the U.S., uh, back then I was still in Europe, I immediately uh, realized that uh, you can use the same tools and tactics also in close societies, you know, in authoritarian states. So what I ended up doing was joining this NGO uh, called Transitions Online, uh, which basically has been around for you know, since the beginning of the, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union since the early 90s, and they did a lot of work Uh, on media and on media reform, and eventually they got involved with trying to use new media to, again, push for democratic change in the former uh, Soviet Union, and Central Eastern Europe as well. So I became their director of new media, which meant that I actually traveled throughout Central Asia and the Caucasus and countries like Moldova, and I went back to my native Belarus quite often, and I trained activists and bloggers and uh, some politicians who were in the opposition, and I basically taught them about the power of social networking. You know, I taught them that you know, those are the tools you should use to uh, push for democratic change. And I did that for three years, uh, during which time I got to know a lot of um, People in Washington, actually, who were actually funding a lot of our work. Uh, A lot of the work of these NGOs is funded by organizations like the National Endowment for Democracy, which is funded by the US government, or private foundations. So I spent three years, more or less, getting to know the key decision makers in this space, but also trying to understand how they think and how they reason about the power of the internet. And what I realized is that many of them did not really have uh, a good idea or good intellectual paradigm for how the internet was affecting uh, those countries. They assumed that. Um, It only empowers the activists, it only empowers the democratic forces, they assume that the dictators fear the internet and there is nothing for them to gain there. They assume that if you let people access information, they will eventually organize, mobilize, and pour into the streets, and the dictators were more or less doomed. Again, I'm summarizing it very crudely, but uh, again, my three-year experience with many of the funders and decision ma- makers in the space was that many of them were very naive uh, and short-sighted. Uh, furthermore, many of them did not realize that uh, they were actually making things worse in many countries by pouring money into Activities which could probably organically develop on their own much better. What I began noticing was that a lot of bloggers and new media entrepreneurs who may have otherwise been innovating by themselves, you know, who would be starting all these wonderful websites the way it happens in uh, you know, America and Western Europe, they were actually waiting for someone in Washington, from Washington to come and give them a grant, and they wouldn't actually innovate until that grant is renewed, or they will deliberately fail to get another grant to fix the mistakes of the previous one. Uh, so So that began to puzzle me and also vary me quite a bit uh, because I felt that a lot of platforms and sustainable platforms for blogging, for activism that could have emerged organically uh, did not emerge because this was influence coming from mostly people who who actually meant well uh, in Washington. So I decided to step back from that work and I spent the next three years uh, working on this book, The Net Delusion, trying again to uh, trace some of the assumptions that I thought were wrong, um, and also trying to figure out uh, what else was happening in this field? Because another thing that I noticed while working on these issues in the region was that a lot of the governments that we sought to oppose were actually becoming active users of these technologies themselves. Uh, they were not just banning websites, they were doing things which were much more sophisticated. Uh, They're becoming much smarter than many of the activists. So something was definitely missing. In, uh, you know, our intellectual paradigm uh, and in how we thought about that space. So I felt that I had to go and dig a little bit deeper into what was actually driving the authoritarian governments to enter this space and get very active. Right? They were not behaving according to the predictions of some of those policymakers that I met who thought that dictators will just be like Luddites. They wouldn't want to touch technology at all. They'll just shy away from it. That's not what I um, saw happening. Uh, While well, working on this book, I think um, I got a very interesting and, and troubling insight during the summer of 2009 when uh, the Iranian protesters poured into the streets of Tehran. I think that was one of the key moments when I saw that uh, a lot of this you know, utopian, if, 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 if you will, assumptions that were driving some of the, my own early work was still... Uh, ubiquitous in how the public thinks about the internet. And, uh, the story I would like to tell about Iran, it's, it's not necessarily to argue that there is no way for the internet to play a role in the protest. It's just that in the case of Iran, it just didn't play a role in the protest. The situation in Iran was very different from the situation in Egypt, where the protests now have been driven mostly by decentralized and uncoordinated uh, youth groups. The case in Iran was far different. It was driven by traditional political movements uh, who got people into the streets, uh, but not necessarily by using new media. Right, there was a lot of hype in the Western media about the so-called Twitter Revolution in, in Iran. Right, and very few people actually bothered to study how many Twitter users were actually present in Iran during that period. The only media entity that did that fact-checking that I'm aware of was Al Jazeera, and uh, they could only identify 60 people who were actually tweeting from Iran uh, on the ground in Tehran. Right, and that number fell to six once the Iranian government uh, shut down some of the communications right, and began uh, a crackdown. Uh, again, this is not to belittle their role. They were very helpful in getting information to the outside world. But that was far from the massive technology-driven movement that many journalists and pundits described on television and in their columns. And um, what bothered me even more is that once the protests on the streets of Tehran uh, quieted down, uh, more or less, what happened was that the Iranian government actually began looking to the same new media websites. They began looking to Facebook and to Twitter to basically track some of the protesters and dissidents. Right? They were not overthrown as a government and they engaged in a very aggressive and harsh crackdown. Right? They used even membership, uh, as far as I know, they even used the fact that uh, one academic was a member of a mailing list run by Columbia University, a pretty innocent mailing list. They used it actually as evidence in court uh, that he was a western spy. Right, And again, some of that is pretty basic stuff. Of course, they would use any kind of excuse to lock some of these people up, but they also looked at uh, you know, social networking profiles, at the connections that existed before between activists, and at how these connections um, actually took shape on social media websites. Again, that was information that was invaluable. (coughs) In one of the most interesting, um, I think, and and, and definitely troubling uh, developments, they uh, looked to Flickr, a site that many of you know, where basically you can post any photos that you like. Uh, And there were a lot of photos from the protests, which were actually uploaded by the protesters themselves. And what happened was that the Iranian government basically collected all of those photos and they identified the people that they still didn't know and they didn't locate and they didn't arrest them and they circled their faces in red on those photos and then they republished the photos on the websites of state-run news agencies, asking the public to identify some of those people. Again, a pretty troubling use of a technique that many of us in the West know as crowdsourcing. Right? Uh, again, the government was um, smart enough to do that. They did a lot of other nasty stuff uh, following the protest. At some point, uh, there were reports coming from Tehran that the government was actually asking some of the Iranian Americans who were flying into the country at the airport, the customs, you know, the police officers, were asking them if they had Facebook accounts. And uh, those of them who said no, uh, the government still took down their names and looked them up online. And if they found that they did have Facebook accounts, they write down, they wrote down the names of their friends uh, on Facebook, right? Because they thought that those people have something to hide. So yeah, it was pretty scary stuff uh, that followed. And the Iranian government, I think. Um, for whatever role the internet played in the protests, the Iranian government basically began viewing it as uh, one of the biggest threats facing the country. So um, they didn't ban it, they didn't block it, instead they tried to impose absolute control over it. So uh, the Revolutionary Guards basically established full control over the main uh, internet service provider in the country, right? again so that uh, my theory is Uh, make it easier for the government to shut it down or control it or monitor traffic if they need to. Uh, They established several units for uh, basically cyber police. Uh, Policemen who monitor the web and monitor uh, all of those Facebook groups and protesters. Right, and uh, those are, um, you know, they've been around for now almost 18 months. So there is much more attention being paid to uh, the spaces. Uh, They've done a lot of other uh, nasty stuff uh, as a government, and now if you look to Twitter, even today, when there are a lot of reports about protesters returning to the streets of Tehran, you actually see many more pro-government messages on Twitter, in part because um, some people think the government basically uh, has a staff of people who basically go and try to spoil some of this conversations that are happening online with pro-government propaganda. So you see many more messages endorsing Ahmadinejad and endorsing the Ayatollahs on Twitter now. And the same is happening not just in Iran, we also see the same trend in Bahrain. Uh, Actually, as of today, And uh, we see pro-government messages uh, popping up there as well. (coughs) So there is an interesting comparison, I think, between Iran and Egypt. Uh, In Egypt, definitely, uh, we saw uh, a successful revolution uh, that was abetted by social media, and social media definitely played, I think, an important role that we should not over uh, that we should not underestimate uh, in, in, in that particular case. Um, it's probably wiser to look at it not as a product of just two weeks or you know 18 days of organizing. Many of the Facebook groups that popped up in Egypt. Uh, Have actually, uh, they initially appeared in uh, uh, the spring of 2008. So many of them, and they were driven also by real world protests, the uh, national strike that was planned in Egypt in 2008, and it failed to take off, right? Which, again, is an interesting, uh, I think, thing to to notice because technically all the Facebook groups were there for the last three years, right? And it took a revolution in Tunisia to basically ignite those Facebook groups and turn them into uh, a real-world movement, right? So again, we while social media definitely is very important, we also have to take notice of the fact that many of these revolutions are still driven by political and geopolitical events. And while the infrastructure is there, uh, we still have to look at the kind of geopolitical and political developments to explain what, what's happening on the ground. Um, the other thing that I think is very uh, important to, um, to remember about Egypt is that uh, the Egyptian government was probably the least sophisticated in terms of its approach to the internet, if you compare them to other authoritarian governments. They did not censor anything like the Chinese government. They didn't have the great firewall of China uh, at all. Uh, they, As far as I know, they did not... Um, have a very strong uh, pro- online propaganda strategy, as we see, uh, for example, in the case of Russia and also in the case of China and Iran. We don't see them turning to online surveillance as often as some other governments. So I think uh, what they did, and again, this is something that they're probably well known for, was uh, brutally intimidate bloggers. So they would they would go and beat them up. Uh, they would uh, lock them up in jail. And um, I think that basically actually helped uh, the cause of the revolution in Egypt because it turned many of these cyber activists into well-known public figures in the country. Uh, And abroad also. Uh, Their causes were taken by various NGOs, uh, and the government's brutal repression of these people uh, turned them into uh, very well-known figures who basically uh, they very instrumental uh, in this movement. <coughs> but I think it's also very important um, to think through what would have happened uh, if a similar situation like in Egypt developed in other governments that are far more sophisticated about the web than Egypt. Uh, in China, there was a very interesting incident uh, in 2009, very similar, by the way, to the incident that may have triggered uh, the uh, revolution in Egypt. For those of you who don't know, in uh, 2010, uh, there was this very famous case in Egypt when uh, a young man was basically uh, beaten to death by the police. He was sitting in an internet cafe, and uh, so, uh, there is speculation that he actually had some videos uh, that, were, uh, that showed police corruption. And you know, police came, and basically uh, they beat him up to death and uh, the photos of that uh, spread online. Even the photos from the morgue uh, were posted to Facebook. The group called Via let's say his name, uh, appeared online. Uh, the f- now famous Google executive who has emerged as one of the leaders of this leaderless movement uh, was the one who actually was behind that Facebook group. Right? So a lot of these grievances which got people into the streets in Cairo can be traced back to that particular incident. And the Egyptian government handling COVID. Uh, and they didn't handle it well. You know, the police uh, was eventually put on trial, the two policemen, but only after a huge public campaign in Egypt. Right? So the government, I think, first of all, uh, you know, uh, was stupid enough to, uh, and, and of course brutal enough to engage in this violent act, and then they botched up the public response, if, if you wish, uh, if, if you, if, if you want to call it that. And look at China, for example, where there was a very similar uh, incident uh, in 2009. A very similar story, uh, a peasant was uh, arrested supposedly for illegal logging in one of the Chinese provinces, and he was also arrested and put in jail, and after two weeks uh, his parents got a call from the police and the police reported that he basically died uh, by hitting his head on the wall while playing hide-and-sick. That was the explanation that the Chinese police gave uh, to his parents. And of course, that triggered an outcry in uh, the Chinese blogosphere. Uh, something like, uh, I think, 80,000 comments were posted to one particular Um, a blog site in uh, 24 hours. There was a lot of anger. People wanted to know what happened. But the Chinese government did something very smart. Uh, Instead of trying to block or censor those pages, or instead of going and trying to arrest people who were spreading these anti-government messages online, they did something else. Uh, they basically uh, the, propaganda, the Deputy Propaganda Chief of that province made a public statement on the internet saying that we would like to form a commission made of netizens made of bloggers who will go and study and investigate the conditions in that prison and write an inclusive report and uh, They ran a competition, you know something like I think a thousand people sent applications and they eventually chose, uh, I think, 15 people, and of course, that all dragged on for weeks. And um, you know, the initial response, I think, was actually very positive in the Chinese blogosphere. People felt that the government actually wanted to involve netizens and bloggers in investigating what just happened. <coughs> but of course, later we found out that all the 15 people who were appointed to that commission um, were either working or used to work for the state media. So of course they were all um, you know, uh, planted by, by the government, but also they never got access to surveillance tapes, they never could actually go and properly examine what happened, they just you know, were shown that cell where he died and that was it. But if you look at it as a case study of how the Chinese government dealt with online dissent, I think it's, it's a textbook example, they, you know, except for the fact that they had those 15 people who were all working for state media, and that fact leaked out. It was a perfect uh, strategy, right? and it worked in their case. And I think that shows you that um, there are many other governments which are far more sophisticated, uh, not just about the web, uh, but also about public relations, and about how you actually deal with public opinion online. And in China, this is a huge subject. Uh, not only do they uh, try to react very uh, quickly and rapidly and aggressively to similar acts of online discontent, they also train bloggers. In China, there is a famous kind of very loose online collective known as 50 Cent Army. And uh, they have nothing to do with the rap singer. They just paid 50 cents for every comment that they make online. And uh, of course, most of those comments are pro-government. Right, so the government actually maintains uh, you know, one of the estimates for this uh, 50 cent army was 238,000 people right, across the country. Again, that's an estimate, but it gives you a rough idea of how much resources the government is actually pouring into trying to control uh, online sentiment and online dissent. They train those bloggers, they pay them, and the idea is that instead of trying to censor a critical blog posts, Right? They would rather actually spin it. They would rather accuse its author of being an agent of the CIA, or of Mossad, or of any other you know, agency, and thus discredit his or her reputation. Uh, yes, it's true that when you try to block something on the Chinese internet, it easily backfires and uh first of all it lends credence to the belief that what you are after the government may actually be true right if the government wants to get something off the internet uh, probably there is some truth in, in it right so uh Secondly, uh, the more the government tries, uh, the more bloggers try to repost it elsewhere. Right. So the censorship strategy in many of these cases actually backfires. So the governments turn to propaganda and spinning instead, and I think this is very important to realize. But it's not just propaganda that the governments are in, increasingly experimenting with. It's also um, online surveillance and new forms of censorship. Uh, and what we see with surveillance, as, as I've said, as you know, we see we saw some of that in Iran. The government turns to social networking sites to learn more about its opponents, or to learn more about the friends of its of, of its opponents, right? Because it's a good chance that uh, the opponents of the government will have other friends who are also opponents of the government, right? So again, it helps to grow some of the databases. Um, but uh, mobile technology is another feature which is extremely insecure, in which the governments use increasingly to track uh, the movements of dissidents. Uh, in my own country, in Belarus, we also had street protests in December, on December 19th, 2010, uh, two months ago, um, and uh, we had presidential elections. A lot of people showed up on the square, hoping for some kind of a revolution, as they do every six years. Uh, and uh, unfortunately and predictably, the government uh, crushed that revolt or you know, uh, nascent revolt and arrested 600 people. But now there are reports that the government has actually turned to mobile operators, to the companies that run mobile networks in Belarus, and they basically asked them for information about all of their customers who were on that public square at that particular moment during protests. Again, this information is easy to obtain because your mobile phones have to connect to mobile towers. So if uh, the government really wants to know that, they have the capacity uh, to track all of those people, or they don't even have to track those people. They just have to seed the rumor that they have that data and that will already somewhat intimidate uh, the people who basically, uh, you know, may show up with a mobile phone uh, afterwards, right, at the next protest. Uh, in Egypt, by the way, you know, there was another very interesting use of mobile phones for uh, propaganda, right? You may have noticed that uh, Vodafone, which runs some of their mobile phone networks, basically had to send pro-government messages uh, to all of its subscribers in Egypt, calling on them not to show up at the Tahrir Square, right? Uh, so again, uh, it didn't help, of course, Mubarak in the end. Uh, but it does show you that uh, you know, if authoritarian governments are strong and are in control, they do have the ability to exploit those technologies um, very carefully, uh, very, very uh, you know, aggressively and, and strategically. Uh, the reason I think why we have to pay more attention to how authoritarian governments use the web, uh, there are two reasons. I think. And reason number one uh, is because uh, I actually believe that the internet can be uh, a powerful force for democratization. You know, I do not reject the capacity of the internet to contribute to promoting democracy and democratic values and human rights. The problem, <laughs> of course, is how do you allocate resources wisely, right, and uh, that process of allocation of resources and coming up with a strategy to use the internet as a tool of democratization requires certain assumptions about <laughs> Uh, you know, what should be done and how internet control works. Uh, you know, if you look at how we thought about internet control five years ago or 10 years ago, much of it was very simple. We thought that governments, all they do is uh, ban websites or filter websites, right? Uh, so all the money that the American government and American foundations and European governments, uh, all that money went into building tools basically provide you access to banned websites. Right? Now, however, we see that certain governments are doing many more things. You know, They engage in cyber attacks, right, which make certain websites completely unavailable from everywhere, even from America. So if you build that tool, which allows you access to banned websites from China, but the original website is unavailable because of a cyber attack, the tool is worthless. Right? So, um, and this just shows you that the way in which we think about internet control and the way in which we can identify many of its facets will eventually determine where, we, where and how we allocate resources. And this is a very important question given the growing commitment of the American government to this issue. Right? We all, some of you may have heard about Hillary Clinton giving a big speech on internet freedom yesterday where she said that uh, the United States government has spent 25 million dollars on supporting these causes and want to spend uh, a similar amount in, uh, in the next year. So uh, there are a lot of questions, very pragmatic logistical questions that need to be settled, but we first need to figure out the intellectual framework for even how we think about these issues. And the second reason why I think we should care about how authoritarian governments use the WAP, but also how uh, it makes the lives of many dissidents and protesters harder, is because there are a lot of Western companies that are basically complicit in um, suppressing and not promoting internet freedom. Uh, Again, to turn to Egypt, the Egyptian government actually had the capacity to monitor all the traffic that was passing through its networks and to very closely watch what its opponents were doing by using technology that was sold to them by an American company called NARS, which is actually owned by Boeing. Right? Um, and this is just one example. The same company sells similar technology to Saudi Arabia. Right? So we are in this very interesting situation where some of the American companies, whether it's Facebook or Google or Twitter, are actively used uh, to topple these regimes, while some other American companies supply the technology that these very regimes use to suppress the, uh, the, the protesters and the protest, And I think this is something that uh, we need to be very well aware of. Even if you look to Twitter and Facebook and Google, what you'll notice is that I think the revolutions in Tunisia and Egypt succeeded uh, not because of Facebook and Twitter, but in spite of them. Uh, right? They uh, do not offer a very secure environment to an activist, and many activists have been very vocal about the fact that they want Facebook, for example, to offer them the opportunity to uh, work there under pseudonyms, using false names. Because if they set up an anti-government campaign in China, using their real names, chances are the government will come and arrest them the following day, right? So they want to use pseudonyms. Facebook, on the other hand, doesn't want to allow that. They just deleted, for example, the account of a prominent Chinese activist precisely because he was using a pseudonym, right? And they don't want to do it simply because it will harm their business interests. It will dilute their marketing base. It will make it much harder for them to sell precise and targeted advertising if they start having all those fake accounts uh, spreading. Besides, Facebook does not want uh, to um, be in conflict with the Chinese government because Mark Zuckerberg just visited China and they're thinking of expanding there. Right? Again, so there are a lot of business tensions here that I think need to be resolved. And um, the other point that I think is worth mentioning here is that uh, while it's, I think, a good idea for the American government to be promoting uh, a concept like Internet freedom, Uh, It's also, I think, uh, is very important for the government to realize that many of its actions will be perceived as extremely hypocritical uh, by the rest of the world and may actually hurt the cause of internet freedom in the long term what 's happening domestically in America is pretty much the opposite of internet freedom it 's rather what I would call you know, the agenda of internet control. You look at what uh, the likes of FBI and NSA want to do with the internet, they want to establish more, more oversight over cyberspace. They want to build secret backdoors into software like Skype to better monitor the conversations between you know, us users. Right? They want to have more authority to shut down websites which uh, you know, trade and counterfeit or pirated material. They want all of those things, in part because um, you know, they feel very insecure about cyberspace. And of course, a lot of uh, other governments see this hypocrisy and see this double standards, where on the one hand, the American government doesn't want the Chinese or the Iranians to have you know, the ability to turn off the internet. Right? They simply don't want the Chinese to shut the internet whenever they have protests. But then here in the United States we have two senators, uh, Senator Collins and Lieberman, proposing or reintroducing the idea for an internet kill switch bill on the same day that Egypt shuts down the internet. Right. I mean, how ironic is that? So again, and you can go even further and look at the reaction to Wikileaks, right? from American politicians, also from uh, the U.S. government. Uh, that reaction has been not exactly inspired by the principles and ideals of Internet freedom. Right? It has been all about exerting pressure on companies like Amazon, outside of the legal process, outside of court system to have them remove Wikileaks files from their servers. Again, this is not a debate about Wikileaks, but if we are ready to accept an environment where American politicians can create this climate of fear and then intimidate internet companies and have them delete stuff from their servers, then we are more or less talking about China because that's exactly what happens there. Uh, It's actually very, I think, a revealing example, because much of the censorship that happens in China uh, doesn't even involve the government anymore. What happens there is that the government there has cultivated a dozen internet companies which serve as local alternatives to Facebook and Twitter, and uh, it basically deputizes them to go and remove whatever content they think is uh, hurting the interest of the government. So uh, one academic friend of mine, uh, Rebecca McKinnon, did an interesting experiment. She set up blocks on 20 different Chinese platforms, block platforms. So she had 20 blocks, and she would regularly post material that the Chinese government wouldn't like, about uh, you know, human rights, uh, dissidents, Nobel Peace Prize, about all sorts of issues which the Chinese government is not fond of. And of course, the Chinese... Internet companies all censored her blog to different degrees. Some were very censorious and deleted a lot of stuff. Deleted, you know, every second blog post. Some deleted every fifth blog post. Right? The thing here is that once the climate, once the government creates this climate of fear, uh, gov- uh, companies often err on the side of being conservative. They would rather delete everything that that user posts not to run into potential problems with the government. And this explains why a revolution uh, like the one in Egypt would be very hard uh, to perform in China, in part because much of their internet is controlled by local internet companies that will remove a group like the one that helped to facilitate protests in Egypt within hours, if not minutes, right? in the severe unfortunate environment that uh, we are in. So uh, <coughs> I think we're running out of time, correct? So I think I will stop here, and I would be more than happy to take your question. Much um, has been made about the failure
1: of the United States Uh, intelligence services in uh, predicting what was going to happen in Tunisia and especially in Egypt. Do you think that uh, is a problem that is going to be fixed? Or do you think it was a problem that they couldn't have discovered even if they were more
0: sophisticated? There was a hearing in Washington uh, about 10 days ago about that particular problem and uh, one of the conclusions uh, reached by senators there was that uh, the problem was (laughs) in the CIA not spending enough time on Facebook. (laughs) <laughs> um, uh, so I think one of the solutions we'll see, and I think it's a, it's a serious issue, what you'll see is uh, a lot more attention being paid to social media by intelligence agencies, and not just in America, but obviously also in authoritarian states. As I've said, you know, the Iranians are watching this space very Closely right now, but we will see more of that in, uh, in in America as well. I mean, some of you may not know, but CIA actually have their own venture capital fund. It's called Incutel. and they have actually been investing in a lot of companies that monitor trends on social media sites. They have active investments in uh, in two companies that I know of, which basically monitor Twitter and Facebook for trends. And of course, what happened in Egypt uh, could have been at least anticipated, right? the, per, the risk that the protest in Tunisia posed uh, some threat to Mubarak, according to CIA's estimates, from early January was just 20%. Right, so clearly they were not watching the spaces very closely, but I think uh, they can definitely improve. Uh, I'm not sure it means a lot of great things for us users of this sites because again, it will mean that you know, chances are your tweets or your Facebook pokes will be watched by the CIA, but that's the reality that we have to accept.
1: I, I read recently that there was some surprise at the extent to which Egypt was, w- did have a kill switch. Um, that they were able to shut things down so, so easily yes. if they needed to. Um, and I was wondering, A, how easy that is and, and, and how does that work? So, in other words, if could the U.S. government without Lieberman Initiative or any other government easily have turn off the internet if they wanted to?
0: A lot here depends on the uh, infrastructure and the telecommunications market. You know, obviously, if you have 100 ISPs in the country, it will be very tough for you to be negotiating with all of them. The initial theory about the Egyptian kill switch was that the government just made four or five phone calls because they have a very small number of ISPs. They have, I think, uh, four, actually, main ISPs, and the government convinced them that they should just, well, convince them, you know, convince is the wrong word. That, you know, they made them an offer they couldn't refuse, but, uh, you know, so, but then there was another theory that the government basically uh, actually went into one of the uh, you know, traffic exchange, Points in in Cairo, and then they tinkered with technology there. They delivered certain, you know, uh, lines of code uh, from from the operational file, to put it in very crude terms. So uh, we still don't know what exactly happened. So those are two competing theories. Uh, again, uh, the end result I think would happen in Egypt would be that now every single government and every single dictator is reading up on uh, telecom infrastructure. Uh, you know trying to figure out how all of those you know tubes actually work, uh, and uh, you will see probably many more of them uh, using the skill switch idea or at least trying to centralize decision making and uh, Uh, you know, trying to bring as much control as they can under, you know, one person and one button. So, you know, if in the past you had the red button that would launch the nuclear weapons, now you'll have the red button for the internet kill switch. Mm -hmm. But I think this is more or less uh, where we are heading. And I'm sure there will be plenty of American technologists and companies and consultants that will assist authoritarian governments with with that work.
1: I was wondering what you thought of uh, Clay Shirky's foreign affairs article recently and in particular the idea that the value of the social, the social networks and new media might not necessarily be as tools for activists but rather as a space in which sort of like private discussion can go on which could yes. then lead to sort of more civil society type discussion and so and then you know, after a while, potentially lead to a situation in which activists can organize and have power on or offline.
0: And I think you summarized that article pretty well. Uh, Clay's point in that foreign affairs cover story last month was that uh, maybe we shouldn't look at new media as primarily the tools of mobilization, but we should take a longer term view and think that the internet creates new spaces where you can establish connections with diverse social and political groups that you couldn't establish before the Internet, particularly in authoritarian states. So in Egypt, there is some evidence that the Internet has allowed some activists from the Muslim Brotherhood to actually converse online with some of the secular or even socialist activists. right? So there is this conversation going on and maybe it's reshaping the public sphere in a positive way. Uh, I think uh, this is probably true of some states. (coughs) This is probably true of many states in the Middle East. Uh, I would be far more cautious about taking, uh, making the same conclusions about Russia or China. You know, looking at Russia, the country which I know probably best, uh, I just know that they have deliberately tried to, uh, you know, engineer their own public sphere, and that was the effort of much of Putin's work and Meredith's work in the last decade. You know, they've tried to build the so-called public chamber, you know, filled with pro-government intellectuals that. Apparently, debate important issues, and of course, the agenda there is mostly set by the government. They try to create, uh, as many of you know, these youth movements, which again try to function as some kind of a quasi civil society, even though they're all controlled by by the Kremlin. So many of the spaces have been quite successfully usurped by the governments. Right. So I think this is where. Uh, we'll see a lot of tension. Whether these new spaces have actually made it easier for the Russian civil society to function, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Definitely, when it comes to raising money, uh, it has become easier. Uh, in many other you know areas, uh, it, it has become harder. Again, because of cyber attacks, because of surveillance, because of the same uh, channels being used by the government. You know, there was a series of videos posted on YouTube last year in Russia, which showed the leading Russian opposition leaders and politicians, you know, giving bribes to policemen. It was a deliberate smear campaign with, uh, you know, hidden cameras. And uh, those videos were widely distributed uh, on YouTube and on live journals. So the government has the means uh, to exploit the same very channels, unfortunately.
1: Hi, thanks for your talk. I'm wondering if you can help me clarify what might be a contradiction in you saying that um, on one hand on the one hand sixty people were using Twitter, and it didn 't yeah. really um, uh-huh. impact things in Iran. however, the Iranian government found it necessary to block twitter sure but also um, and similarly that sort of authoritarian wing of mm-hmm. the u s feels that um, the internet is sort of a field day for surveillance and collection of information, um, but also that there is a movement to have a kill switch by the, I guess, ultra-authoritarian wing of of US. One sense you're saying that the internet is um, sort of a boon for control, Yes, but at the same time, there are people who
0: but they want don't want control- the permanent kill switch, they don't want just to turn it off now and have no internet, oh, right? now, they want to turn it off during, yeah, w- during Robert, some sort of emergency. Unrest, so. The first contradiction is very easy, I mean you should not assume that the Iranian government are rational, uh, right, and that they sit there and uh, basically in a way column A versus column B and then make the decision. Uh, <coughs> they, my, my theory is that they were reading the same overblown reports about Twitter revolution on CNN than the rest of us were reading. Right, and uh, it may actually have been them who bought into the myth that Twitter was driving things in Tehran more than anyone else. In part because they have so much to lose. The um, other thing w- that happened in Iran was that, which made them, I think, very scared about these platforms, was that uh, an official at the State Department, while the protests were underway in Tehran, uh, contacted Twitter. He got in touch with his executive friends on Twitter, and he said that, look guys, you're planning maintenance during the time when Twitter is being used in Iran. Stop that maintenance, it will be a very good idea. And of course, it was probably the smart move. It was, you know, isn't it great that an American politician made such a you know, nice gesture? The problem there was that he also leaked this information to the New York Times or someone did like this information to the New York Times. right? Which of course, New York Times wrote a great article celebrating the new media uh, credentials of the Obama administration. right? But of course, from the perspective of the Iranian government, uh, it created this myth that the State Department was somehow secretly pulling the strings of their youth appraisal you know, in Tehran via Twitter and actually track the coverage of that incident in the book in the newspapers across the world. The Chinese newspapers thought the same, the Russian newspapers thought the same, Even newspapers in Moldova thought that you know, it was all the American government's plot to use Twitter to overthrow regime, you regime know, in, in Iran. So again, many of those governments are paranoid and they do not react rationally, and uh, that's just something that I think <coughs> we, have to, we have to accept as given. Uh, with regards to the second attention you 've identified and the contradiction there i don 't think there is much by way of contradiction again, what they want is to be able to turn off the internet when the next big emergency hits, when there is a cyber emergency you know, a cyber war of some kind, which I think also a fear that is probably overblown um, and that doesn 't really clash with them collecting data or watching uh, you know and in some sense it 's actually a very organic argument they want to be able to monitor what you say on Skype to avoid the next cyber emergency. And once it happens, they want to turn it off. Right? So I, I, I don't see the contradiction there. Um, you actually kind of segued into my question about um, the threat of cyber war and how the Pentagon declared cyberspace as a, I guess the next um, war zone. Um, and I guess my question is how do you think that will affect the freedom of the internet, as you say, and how that attribution to the military and making cyberspace a militarized zone uh-huh. will affect internet freedom. I think the problem with cyber war debate right now that's happening in this country is that uh, it's just dominated by people who have a stake in this debate. You know, Most of the people who speak on this issue are <coughs> People who used to work for the government in various national security posts who now advise uh, the cybersecurity industry, which, by the way, is growing at rates, you know, phenomenal rates 15, 20% a year. Their budgets are doubling and tripling. And, you know, every single story like the Stuxnet virus in Iran probably quadruples their budget overnight uh, because there, there is just so much fear going on. And these people are not necessarily. Uh, Known for downplaying or uh, you know downplaying the risks, you know, or using rhetoric which is measured, you know, you listen to the descriptions of the kind of threats that face us, and it's all about the digital Katrina or uh, cyber 9/11 or electronic Pearl Harbor, and again, those are real quotes uh, uttered by people who probably should know better. Again, there is very little evidence to suggest that anything of that kind is actually uh, forthcoming. Even if you look at the Stuxnet story, which is fascinating for various reasons, and those of you who may have missed it, it's about uh, this virus that uh, supposedly disables some of the nuclear uh, reactors in Iran. Uh, There is no connection to the internet in that story whatsoever. That virus spreads through USB sticks right? that were brought to that reactor. Those nuclear reactors are not connected to the internet. So if you want to use the Stuxnet example to ask for a kill switch, it's a very bad argument because there is nothing to turn off there because it's not connected to the internet to begin with. But of course, many of the subtleties get lost and I think uh, there needs to be a much more active public debate about not just the nature of the threat, but about who gets to frame the debate. Because I fear that uh, you know, in some sense the cybersecurity industry has just dominated it for so long, and journalists, uh, to my regret and uh, very sadly, do not write very good stories about cyber warfare either. In part because they do not understand it well. You know, to their credit, Estonians and you know, Estonians suffered from their own kind of first cyber war in two thousand and seven when they had this. Uh, Conflict with Russia over that statue. The Estonians actually now are investing in uh, media courses and journalism courses about cybersecurity to at least improve the coverage of that issue a little bit. I mean, in other respects, the Estonians are overreacting as well. They now teach cybersecurity to their uh, kids in uh, elementary school. Uh, so, you know, y- you see how far that fear can go. But I think improving media coverage is one thing where we can start uh, because otherwise, you'll see erosion of privacy, more monitoring of these networks by NSA and others, and it won't be positive. I actually have two questions. One... That's okay if you follow me on (laughs) Twitter.
1: One, um, actually having to do with the fact that you talked a little bit about the corporations and how they're, uh, in particular, about Facebook wanting to open up and move into China. And I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about the relevance of the corporation involved with the government, because we're talking about multinational corporations, and, and obviously they have their own agenda. And then, two, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about Anonymous, which has kind of come to the fore, speaking a little bit about cyber war, about how they might have eventually play an influence because they're really an online force at
0: this mm-hmm. point. Uh, well it's a very tough issue I think for uh, f- for the State Department especially to figure out what to do about this fact that now so much of this digital infrastructure used for civic and cyber activism is provided by private actors. And it's a huge challenge in part because again when it comes to countries like Iran when it comes to countries like Russia or China which uh, you know, have their own suspicions and grievances about the U.S. Many of them will suspect those companies of harboring, you know, revolutionary activities of some kind, right? So they will be seen as I have been saying for a while. These companies will be seen as digital equivalents of Voice of America and Radio Free Europe. Right? And of course, that's not the right way to see them. And it will hurt their ability to expand, I think. and will probably make it much harder for them to take root in many of these countries. Uh, so my fear, again, is that we will end up in a situation where more and more governments will try to cultivate uh, their own social networks. To some extent, we see that happening now in Vietnam, for example. So last year in Vietnam, the government banned fa- Facebook. Uh, they've been banning it for a few years, but they also launched their own government-run social networking site, with you know 250 staffers and programmers running it, um, with a very boring name of Go Online, which you know tells you a little bit how creative it might be. But uh, again, it's uh, and you know, and if you read Go on, you know, Go Online is a goon. It also makes it very interesting. Uh, <laughs> Uh, a very interesting reading, but uh, the point here is that you know, we'll, you'll see more and more governments which basically are trying to build their own uh, domestic technology which will be much easier to control. And in the case of a, situation, a revolutionary situation like the one in Egypt or Tunisia, they'll just go and turn off the site, or they'll just go and delete the group. You know, in Belarus, uh, again, during the last elections, and during the protests in December, it was a very interesting um, incident. uh, A lot of organizing took place on a Russian alternative to Facebook called Kontakte. And they had actually uh, a group uh, that was supporting one of the leading candidates from the opposition. And his group got deleted on the day of the elections, right? With all of its, whatever, eight or 10,000 supporters, right? So again, In some sense, we are lucky that so many Egyptians were on Facebook and not on some domestic Egyptian alternative to Facebook, but I fear that it was only because the Egyptian government was just so naive and unprepared to the challenge of the internet. Uh, With regards to Anonymous, um, it's a very tough challenge as well for law enforcement, but also for the internet freedom agenda as such. In Anonymous, there's basically a very loose collective of people who do what some may characterize as kind of vigilante justice. right? They (coughs) spoke up on behalf of, uh, well, they spoke up for Wikileaks, for example, when Amazon and Visa and PayPal uh, cut their connections to Wikileaks, so they launched cyber attacks on the websites uh, of these companies, but they also launched attacks on the government sites, so they launched attacks on the websites of uh, Tunisia and Egypt and even Italy. Uh, I guess being not very happy with Berlusconi, but they also go and attack random targets. You know, they attack. Uh, uh, you know, they they they're not a particularly pleasant group. They're not. You know, they're liberal in their views. They you know they're very homophobic. They misogynistic. I mean, it's not uh, a particularly. You know. Uh, A pleasant uh, collective, right? So, uh, and we don't know what to do about them, right? And I think uh, there is no easy solution. Now they are being prosecuted by the Department of Justice and FBI, some of their members at least, for launching attacks on on those Amazon and PayPal and other companies. At the same time, we don't hear about people who launched attacks on WikiLeaks itself when it published the cables. Right? So there are also a lot of people concerned with the double standards. Uh, but uh, you know, if the law was broken, I guess, the main question is how severe the punishment should be. And this is where I've written also a lot about whether some of the attacks could be viewed as uh, legitimate civil disobedience. And I think this is something that we need to ask about. Because in some countries, the very act of launching a cyber attack on a site like Amazon, with the purpose of showing your political position, can get you up to 10 years in jail. Right? And it's definitely not the same as going and participating in a sit-in in front of their office, which will also shut down their activities to some extent. Right? You wouldn't get 10 years in jail for a sit-in. Right? So we have to rethink a lot of things in light of that. But uh, you know, I, 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 I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, unfortunately. So, um, all right, I'll, I'll stop here. Thank you so much. <laughs>